Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello. Um, since this horror began, what I've tried to do is platform voices which we desperately need to hear from and voices which sadly much of the media have not been given I guess, the space that these voices deserve. Now, I've done my best, obviously, to give a platform to Palestinian voices, but it's also so important to give a platform to Israeli voices, particularly those who support a lasting peace, which can only be based on the land being shared, based on justice and equality between um, Israeli Jews and Palestinians. Uh, Without that, there is no future and there is no hope. Um, And with that in mind... I'm really delighted today to be speaking to Alon Mizrahi, who is a really, really fascinating and insightful voice. I've been following him on Twitter. I've been reading his stuff. His tweets keep going viral. And I think you'll see why, because I think he has a huge amount of very unique insight uh, and lived experience as well. Um, but just, you know, there's you can, everyone's bored of me saying these two words, but moral clarity, that for me is crucial given everything that has happened. He's an author, blogger, writer, and so on. Um, And he comes from a really interesting perspective because he is um, Israeli, he is Arab, and he is Jewish. Um, And I think that brings a lot of particular lived experience. Um, Balon, it's it's great to finally speak to you. So hello. Yeah, hi, Owen. And it's great great to be on your show. And it's quite a build-up you made there. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. I, I like the way you introduced me, so uh, thank you for that, yeah. Not at all, no, I, it was more than deserved. Just to begin with, could you just tell us a bit about yourself, because um, in terms of your own heritage, your own family heritage. Okay, um, I'm an Israeli. I was born in, I was born in Haifa, which is an, uh, an uh, Arab Jewish town. Um, both my parents used to live in Haifa, uh, and uh, I grew up in a small uh, workers' town. Um, it's it's a Mizrahi family. I'm from a working class background. I'm probably the least, the last like um, person of type of Israeli anyone intended would become would become like a voice like an intellectual or political cultural voice. Uh, so um, I've been in Israel all my life, basically, and I've been through different parts of Israeli society. The religious parts, uh, through high-tech parts, through um, ultra-religious and um, the IDF. I served in the IDF. and. Uh, I think I know Israeli society and I know Israeli mentality because I have lived it, you know, I'm soaked in it. I've seen it, learned it, heard it all my life. So uh, uh, when I speak about Israel, it's both from experience and an observing eye, which I always had from like a little kid. 
I studied in terms of just my formal introduction, I, I had my uh, BA in English language and literature some 25 years ago. And since then I was, I was mainly writing uh, from, for like commercial writing, copywriting, and some political stuff, and maybe we'll talk about it uh, later. Um, and I, after many years of trying to sound my voice in Hebrew, uh, these weeks and months of this war uh, made me switch into English. And this is how, how I got to your Twitter and your attention. This is basically why I'm here. So, uh, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm as Israeli as they come, but I'm, I've always been a kind of a rebel, you could say. I was anti-establishment since I can remember myself. I hated authority always, but it took me a time and a long process and a lot of life you know, to put the, the you know, the, the, the way I've been through into words and concepts that can make sense to other people. Uh, yeah. I, I was really struck by a piece you wrote, and we'll talk about more generally about what you wrote about that. But just, just to begin in that introduction, and the, the article for those, and I, re I really recommend people read it. It's entitled, Maybe It's Time We Started Talking about how terrible Zionism is uh, for Jews too. So you're quite right. You are definitely rebellious, I think, within the Israeli context, um, in which you wrote, as a good Zionist, Mizrahi, working-class kid from a broken Zionist, Mizrahi, working-class family, I was never introduced to the possibility of deep political skepticism or rebellion in my formative years. The immigration trauma suffered by Moroc my Moroccan-born mother was never treated or addressed, as been the case for the vast majority of Moroccan Jews in what you call white supremacist Israel. Now, I'm quite interested in that point. I just want, want, want to talk to you about first, because some of the defenders, I guess, of the Israeli state as it is currently constituted would rebut many of the claims put against it by those who oppose, obviously, the huge, terrible oppression of the Palestinian people, um, that it can't possibly be racist because it's multiracial, not least because there are people like yourself from... Arab heritage. Um, and I, I spoke to Nora Erika, who's a Palestinian-American scholar, and she made a really interesting point about how a kind of, you know, white European Jewish culture became very dominant and a global, very rich, diverse Jewish culture became subordinated to that, and kind of erased by it. So I'm just interested in what your thoughts are of that when there's this claim of, well, actually Israel is a multiracial, diverse uh, society and therefore accusations of racism don't make any sense because you describe it as white supremacist Israel and you say that as an Arab Jewish Israeli. Yeah, yeah, I say it and I stand behind it fully, but there are two parts to your question. Why, one is the, the lost Jewish experience, which was extremely varied and diversified across many cultures, continents, country, countries, backgrounds, and so on. This is one part of it. The other part of it is the, the white supremacy part. And two, the two parts are essential to understanding Israel. Because Israel basically took like a million different Jewish perspectives and lived experiences and, and, and welded it all together to create one identity, one mentality. Because 
And this reductionist approach to, to identity, to psychology, to, to who you can be and who you should, you should be, I think this has caused like, terrible psychological and cultural damage to Jews themselves. Jews have become so narrow-minded thanks to Zionism, which was never the case before. I mean, in any Jewish community I've heard about or read about, um, Jews used to communicate not only with the societies around them, but with other Jewish communities from other parts of the world, which made them very rich in, in their mind, in their ability to talk with the world, understand it, interpret it, behave in it, converse with it. And, and all the Zionism put Jews, ironically, behind the walls of a ghetto and, and closed them from the world. And in doing so, it had to, because this, is what, this was the European habit or mindset, the white colonial European mindset. You had, you had to choose one way of being and enforce it. And because all, I mean, I would challenge your viewers to name one prominent Mizrahi Jew. Yeah. You, you've never heard of one. You've never heard of one. You can't oh, me? One. My viewers, sorry. Yeah, your viewers or yourself. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it's going to be very good. It's going to be very difficult for you, if, if it's going to be even possible, to name one prominent Mizrahi Jew. Oh, Mizrahi Jew. Sorry, that's why I was confused. Yeah. Mizrahi yeah, sorry. Mizrahi Jew. Yeah, of course. You're right. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to do that. Although we are half of Israel's population, we are almost wiped out from the, the cultural representation. So uh, uh, very early on, the, the, the first Zionists, the, the founding fathers of Zionism, so to speak, they decided they, they were going to create this, this European model in the Middle East and create all Jews in its one image. And of course, um, and it took them a while to, to get Mizrahi Jews to Israel. The, the, the most Jews that immigrated to Israel until 1948 were, were European Jews who were escaping the growing anti-Semitism anti in Europe. Most Mizrahi Jews, and frankly, most Jews in general, were not so enthusiastic about Zionism. Most of them chose to, to go to America, for instance, and Mizrahi Jews, Moroccan community, some Jews came to Israel and they also came before Zionism. Uh, by the way, they were, they were erased from Zionist history as well. The contribution of Mizrahi Jews to, to the what is called Shivat Zion. And just so, by the way, just so people are clear, when we talk about Mizrahi Jews, just in case people aren't clear about the definitions, we mean uh, Jews from predominantly Arab Muslim majority nations. Just, yes, just... yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I was, yeah, I was uh, assuming people know that, but of course, they, they, there's no reason they would know that. So, Mizrahi Jews were were they are an accident in Zionism, basically. I think that there was there was never a plan to bring them to 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 Israel to the renewed Zionist state because uh, uh, Arabs and Muslims and brown people were seen as inferior in Europe and we know this is the case until today sadly and tragically 
It was much so, much more so 100 years ago. It, it is only after the, the establishment of Israel, when, when in the early 50s, when, when the leadership of, the, of Israel realized they don't have enough people to, to populate this place, to manage this, this place, because there, there weren't enough Europeans just to come. So they realized the only resource of, of the place they can get Jews from is Arab countries. So they started doing all kinds of stuff, some of it very nasty to get Moroccan Jews, Iraqi Jews, Egyptian Jews, Yemeni Jews to come to Israel. So we were, I think, I have no like historical record of this, but this is my feeling. Mizrahi Jews, Arab Jews were not part of the Zionist plan. And they, they still are not to this day. You know, they are, they are still not part of the plan. Israel sees itself as a, as a Western, it's so funny. How is Israel in the West? How is Israel a European? It is so bizarre. I mean, among Mizrahi radicals, political Mizrahi radicals, this is like a, a running joke. I mean, how are we in the West? How is this a Western European country? You're in the Middle East. None of the, none of us speak any Arabic. My, my parents spoke Arabic. My father's mother tongue was Arabic, but none of us spoke Arabic. Arabic was seen as the language of the, the, the other, the foreign, the enemy, the, the dangerous and the human animals. And you're, you're going to live in the Middle East, but not speak Arabic. And, and think about what, what it means for all the people who came to Israel and whose language was Arabic. So they were ashamed to speak their own language in their supposed motherland. So this is the trauma I'm talking about in my article, for instance, uh, that happened with my mother and so many other Misrahi Jews, Moroccan Jews in particular, because they were the biggest group. 300,000 Jews lived in Morocco in peace. Not a single Moroccan Jew was affected by the Holocaust. Although the French colonialists still ruled Morocco in those years, but no Moroccan Jew, not a single one was affected by the Holocaust. They didn't have this collective trauma. They didn't think they were going to be exterminated and annihilated. It was not part of their, you know, uh, psyche. This they acquired in Israel. This, this idea that we are all going to be killed. Everybody wants to kill us, exterminate us, and annihilate us. Everybody hates us so much. This, this is the mentality uh, Israel uh, gave Jews, and it, it it's built on this sense of trauma, and and all the all the original sins of Zionism have, I mean, on October seventh, have reached such a level of maturity that everything exploded at the same time. I mean, the, the isolationism, the the racism and hatred of Arabs, the the victim mentality. All of this, all the very known and documented scenes of Zionism have reached a boiling point more or less at the same time. This is why Israel has such a hard time uh, conceptualizing this in a way that is, that's constructive. And it was clear to me, I'm sorry, 
No, no, carry on, carry on. It was clear to me, on, and I wrote it on my Twitter when I was still writing in Hebrew. This is not just another disaster. This is the this is the end. This is the end. This is what I wrote because, and I, and I said it. Israel has no way of conceptualizing this in a way that will allow it to cope with this in a way that's constructive. And, and we're seeing that's that's what's happening. Before I ask you more, just in terms of the here and now and what happens next, um, I'm just interested in your own, I guess, how your own view of what what we describe as Zionism, how that how that shifted, you know, that political journey, because you are, as you say, Mizrahi Jew, and that's a huge part of Israeli society. Even though, as you say, and you write very eloquently in in the piece I referred to about that kind of dominance of, you know, those from white European ancestry who dominate everything within Israel. Um, but, you know, most Mizrahi Jews are very attached to Zionism, aren't they? Um, often to, well, we'll vote for, for, for Likud, for example, for, for Benjamin Netanyahu's political party and right-wing formations. And I'm just wondering, you know, because obviously the promise of Zionism is it was Jewish people have suffered 2,000 years of persecution and will never be safe in other countries. And therefore, without this, you know, Israel is a political refuge which will protect and defend Jews um, to ensure none of that is ever possible ever again. And that's that was the kind of, I guess, the, the underlying uh, kind of promise. So what made you, because that's like, for a lot of Jewish people, that's obviously extremely compelling, um, even if they don't live in Israel. And um, that sense of throughout history, things seem okay, and then things suddenly turn against us and we have to flee. And now we have a refuge. Um, so I'm just wondering what made you kind of, challenge that in your own head and and why because a lot of people as i say for a lot of for a lot of jewish people everywhere that is still something which feels quite emotionally you know close to them i suppose well i can i can tell you that i, I was never really i never knew uh, this is this may sound like a bit too much but it's honest i promise you i never knew there were arabs in 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 the world or in israel or in palestine I was never introduced, except as part of my own very limited family experience, which really what was what saved me, because this was a path to redemption. Mm -hmm. But throughout Israeli education system, in all my years, in all my schools, and all my classes, and there is never one single case, one single class, where you would see another person who is a legitimate member of society with a legitimate background, legitimate history, legitimate language, le legitimate way of talking, dressing, whatever. So this is, this is Israel's greatest success, and this is also its demise. Because you can only keep people in this bubble of denial for, for so long. Eventually it bursts. And on October 7th, it burst, burst big time. There was no denying anymore that we share this land with other people. And this, this, this really bizarre attempt at creating a, a, an isolationism in a place that's soaked, soaked in Arab history and Arab culture and language and people from Arab descent, this is such a 
tragic choice for Israel to, to do, but this is this also uh, reflects what happens to me on my personal journey because what happened to me was my young brother died in a motorcycle accident. That was in 2009. My younger brother was my, you know, my, my best friend and my soulmate and my whatever in life. I never loved anyone as much as I loved my young brother. It was called Gidon. And he died in a motorcycle accident and it really shattered my world completely. And uh, the moment I got news of it on a, on a phone call from his then wife, I knew immediately that, that anything, everything I knew about life is going to change and my life is going to change and the only way for me to be able to survive this is to find the most radical and extreme and pure form of truth in my life. I have to have truth. And so I started this because so, so much of my life and what I, what I had known before broke. I decided I'm going to embrace this. I'm going to break stuff myself. I'm going to get rid of stuff, get good, rid of beliefs. This really connected with the, with the rebel I, I had always, you know, used to be, but I forgot I was. So as part of this journey, I, I started going to therapy. And in therapy, I was, you know, beginning to open up and to, to realizing I was start, suddenly became aware I was Mizrahi. Because this too was is also always denied in Israel. There's no today it's a little bit allowed because the Likud builds some some of its power from it, from the frustration and the and the pain of Mizrahi Jews. But it's it's using it cynically, channeling it to, to hating Arabs, not fixing Israeli society. But that's another matter. Um, when I found out, when I when I was ready to acknowledge and accept my otherness, my being a Mizrahi Jew, my not being an Israeli, because it was a lie. So it, it allowed me to connect to so much, um, I don't know how to put it, so much negative experience I had in Israel, growing up in Israel. So much, you know, rejection so much patronizing, so much dismissal. And when I realized that, the next step for me was, if I'm feeling like that, what do Arabs feel? Mm. This is what was like the immediate association I had. So I went and I, and I started reading about the Nakba and reading about Palestinian history. And, th and then I realized I was lied to in a way, I, I had no idea uh, all my life about the history of Israel. I had no idea. This is this is like a, a really strange thing to admit, but I I kind of knew, but not really. That that Palestinians actually had a culture here and had a history here and had communities and towns and villages. And it was a real history of real people. It's not just Palestinian propaganda. And this, this 
changed me and it changed my whole approach to, to, to things. And it was, I think it was easy for me because I really never really wanted to, to conform, you know, to be part of established society. I was always suspicious of it. Um, so it really resonated with me quite, quite fast. Like in a year or two, I was already a radical left in Israel. I used to write for a, for a right-wing magazine. And in a year and a half, I was writing for a radical left-wing magazine. And everybody, everybody thought I, was, I went crazy. But yeah, 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 this is what happened. But I didn't go crazy. I connected with, with my humanity. And this process, it's really fascinating. We, we can talk about all of this now, but this still goes on and on and on. And the next phase was, what have I, what have I been denied by blocking my access to my uh, Arabness? What has been taken from me? And suddenly I, I got to remember the, the, the language, my father's language, and the Arab people he used to meet um, sometimes when I was with him. And they would, would address him in Arabic, and he would answer in Arabic. And, and his mother spoke Arabic, and my, some friends from his childhood that I knew who also speak Arabic. And suddenly it dawned on me that those people were so lovely and so sweet and so authentic and so unique that suddenly it became so tragic for me that this was, you know, taken from me. It's all part of my emotional becoming and who I am. So I, I was very eager to, to, to become closer with this. And the way for me to, be, to become closer with this is to get closer to the injustice and the story of, of Palestinians who have gone through the Nakba and all the, the rest of the other stuff. I mean, obviously you talk there about the, the, the horrific oppression that Palestinians have suffered. It's just very striking that you say that, you, you, you said maybe it's time, that's the, you, the headline of your article, maybe it's time we started talking about how terrible Zionism is for Jews too. And for so many, obviously within Israel, but elsewhere as well, that, that's like an ultimate heresy. That's something extremely heretical. So what do you mean? What, why is Zionism, as you see it, why is it so bad for Jewish people? There, there are many reasons for this. The, the first and obvious one, Israel is not a safe place for Jews. And it doesn't make any Jew in, in the world safer. Uh, on the contrary, Israel is so constantly involved in conflict and bloodshed and hatred and animosity. So it it always it keeps Jews uh, really uh, on the path of danger and and hatred and conflict all the time. And this has never been so, you know. Uh, so clear as it is today because this really genocide that's been going on since October 7th that frankly I think that anyone, any decent human being who sees this, who sees all the images and videos coming out of Gaza they're asking this, themselves uh, how is this possible? 
Why are people doing this? Who is doing it? Why are they doing it? And I don't think this is making Jews safer. And the requirement that that is made of us, I mean, like a hundred years ago, Zionism, Zionism's world was come join this grand promise of creating a you know a land for Jews in the in a new and virgin land. No, it, it was a lie, of course, but it wasn't this this topic. Today it is. If you support Zionism, if you support Israel, you must you must support the mass killing, the mass slaughter of children and babies. So if if this amazing, I don't know, slope, I, I, I mean, I, I, it doesn't go much lower than that. If this doesn't cause people to, to, to rethink things, I mean, where are we as a people? Where do we go from this? If we as a people, this is why it's so important for me to speak as a Jew. Not because my being a Jew is such a huge part of my world. My freedom is more important to me. And other people's freedom and other people's stories is not. But when I think about this collective image of a people that's bent on genocide and killing children and causing starvation and hunger and 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 denying medical care and not letting anesthesia go, going in and having children amputated with without without this and women undergoing C-sections without, without anesthesia. This is this is a terrible place to be. This is a terrible. And I'm, I'm trying to get my fellow Jews. I don't know how to call it. This is not a good place to be. This is a terrible place to be. If this has to make you reconsider, this has to make you reconsider. This has to make you look at Zionism with a critical eye. Because when you can. You can tell me, go on a parade, wear a uniform, sing this song, uh, have this holiday. I, okay, I'm, I'm not a big fan of it, of collective whatever, but okay. But if you demand of me, give me your support for my killing children, uh, no. No, that's it. That's it. No. No. The, 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 and this is a big lesson in freedom as well. This disconnects to my my bigger philosophy. So much of what's you know fucked up in our world is because people, and we see this in the states today and in the UK and so many other places. People are being drawn into doing, or participating, or being silent in the face of evil things because they can't say no because they, this conformity, or conformism is is stronger than than than. You know their sense of self, and this is this is so wrong. This is so wrong. You have to reclaim who you are, even if society demands of you to do other stuff. There's some things you have to just say no to. I'm not going to do this. This is important, no matter who you are, what you do, what's your profession, what group you belong to. You and this this is the only way for me, as I see it. To, to make this world more normal. People have to say no. 
I mean, on that, something I've often said, um, since this horrible began, but always stuck by it, something I was, I was raised to believe, to be honest, in a very profound way, was that as a leftist, the left, as we understand the left today, would not exist without the contribution of Jewish people throughout history, which anti-Semites often seized upon, of course, um, as evidence of why Jews should be hated because they were subversives and it was part of the whole trope of Jewish people aren't loyal to their own nations and they're part of an international mm -hmm. leftist conspiracy, that kind of thing. But, you know, and even it remains the case today, you know, every movement I've been involved with for social justice, um, disproportionately Jewish people have been involved in. Um, so that tradition lives on. And you can see in the United States today, a whole generation, particularly of younger Jewish people, you can see them often very active in the movement against the oppression of the Palestinians and everything, particularly that's happened since October. So it lives on. But it, it strikes me that Israel is at war with that tradition, that that very, that huge contribution, that huge tradition, that humanist tradition, which arose, of course, from the historic oppression of the Jewish people, which made so many Jewish people automatically identify with other people who suffer oppression. There's been an attempt to wage war on that by the state of Israel as it currently exists. What do you think? I, I want to challenge you on, on one thing. This is this is the common way to talk about Jews that they're suffering. But I, this is we have to stop this. Suffering is not the only Jewish perspective. Jews led whole and beautiful lives in many places, and I think that part of Jewish Jewish humanism is because they they lived in many places and met a lot of different people. They were able to identify with other groups because when you're exposed, if you only hear about immigrants from, from Mexico or Guatemala or whatever, if you only hear about them on the news, you, you, it's so easy to hate them and fear them. But if you live next to a migrant family, you immediately make a connection with a mother or a father or a child and they play football with your child. And, and, and this is... Um, so I've, I think part of what shaped Jewish psyche, this, this, this tr tendency to be more, uh, this, I, I can't say left-wing because this kind of lost its meaning today, but this is pure humanism. This is what, what uh, humanism is, means everybody has a place, everybody is legitimate. This is what it means. It's very simple. So, if you have, if you lived in, in, uh, I don't know, Poland, Morocco, and you had a family in, uh, in, in, I don't, in, in, you know, in Russia or in Spain or in the U.S., and you exchanged letters, and you maybe went and visited them, and you had uh, your synagogue was in uh, kind of connection with a rabbi in a different country. So you were, Jews were exposed to other cultures, I think, more than, than other people because they were like dispersed this way and uh, among the nations. And I see the beauty in it. I see that this this is this is a lovely thing which which Zionism really. And I'm I'm reconnecting to your question. Zionism hates this. Zionism is a is a singular solution to a singular question. Zionism is the supposed answer to how do, how do I prevent Jews from being pogromed? And it's not even the Holocaust because this mentality predates the Holocaust. I mean, in the 1920s, 30s, before the Holocaust, this was, it was the same mentality. How do I 
regain Jewish power or, or I don't know, potency, uh, whatever, whatever name you want to put it on it or, or label. And in order to do that, I have to mobilize every resource, every mental, psychological, physical resource I can have because this is what singular, you know, solutions do to people, to, the, to people's minds. If this is the answer to all your troubles, then you have to put everything you have into it and everything that doesn't relate to it is unnecessary. It, it becomes cumbersome. You, you need to get rid of it. So uh, all of Israel has become basically ideas. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's not much more than this. Um, a very common trope, well, not trope, argument, I suppose, um, which is promoted by, I suppose, the Israeli state, Benjamin Netanyahu himself has repeatedly pushed this position, but also across the West, um, is that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. It's a form of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism mutates in different contexts, and this is its latest mutation. And the US Congress passed overwhelmingly a resolution declaring anti-Zionism to be anti-Semitism. What would you say to that when that, when that argument is made? I, I can spend, I think, a week just ridiculing this statement from different perspectives. I mean, this is so ludicrous on so many levels. I mean, first of all, Judaism exists like 2,000 or 3,000 years. Zionism only exists 100 and something years. So what is, does it mean? Before Zionism, there was no Judaism. Zionism, if anything, it's an experiment in, in Judaism. It's one branch, even if you want to look at it favorably as a Jewish institute rather than a, a white colonial European thing. But even if you want to do this, this is just one branch of Judaism. This is one experiment, one period of time. We don't know how long this is going to last. We have, we have really have no idea how, how long this is going to last. And maybe in retrospect, it, it's going to be so much easy to see how stupid it was. So, but this is like from a, if you were a Jew and you lack this, this basic historical perspective, you're already dismissed. From the conversation. I mean, solely based on, on historical consciousness. Judaism is so much bigger and so much greater than this, this tiny part of it that's called Zionism. But 
But forget history for one second. When someone says to me, being a man means that you act this way, being a woman means that you act this way, being whatever. Mm. Essentially. My, my response to it is, get the hell out of here. What are you trying to do? What, what is this nonsense? There's no, this, this is this singularity I was referring to earlier. I mean, we, the, the period in history where people feel, you know, legitimate in saying to other people, there's one way to be whatever. There's no one way to run a marathon. There's no one way to, to get up in the morning. There's no one way to, to, to make breakfast. So how can there be one way to be Jewish? This is such nonsense. But further, I mean, Judaism always had divisions, always had sects. I mean, in, in, in Eastern Europe, there were so many different sects and, and schools of, of Judaism. So like the Bund, the Bund, for example, very famously. What? The Bund yeah. in Poland, the Bund. Yeah, yeah, the Bund, yeah. You had the Bund, you had communist Jews, you had ultra-Orthodox Jews. So this is, I mean, this is ahistorical. This is, this is uh, um, narrow-minded. And this is this is the this denies reality on a very basic level of just recognizing the richness of, of Jewish perspective. And there are so many Jews who oppose this in the states in other people. I mean, if you even shut them out from the conversation, this speaks volumes as to your ability to to talk with your neighbors, to talk with Arabs, to talk. I mean, you cannot have a country. You cannot run a country, any country. I mean, all countries are the same in this regard. You cannot run a country and say, this is an island unto itself. I have no consideration for no one. No one is relevant for me. No one understands my experience. I don't give a damn what anybody. I mean, when someone talks like this, I mean, what else can you do than just really ignore them? This is so foolish. And I think this this would have this mentality would have been forced to meet reality a long time ago had it not been for this like stupid US American support. Because what the US is doing, it's helping Israel remain a bubble. It prevents Israel from meeting reality, meeting its neighbors, meeting other people, meeting the world, meeting other Jews, other perspectives, just being alive. This is what being alive means, is you meet other perspective, other people, other stories. But Israel prevents itself from doing, the, doing that. And of course, it's going to get more and more violent because it's more and more frustrated, more and more angry. Because this is what happens to you when, when you disconnect from society, from people, from life. This is what happens. You don't become, it's, it's no comfort to be isolated. It's, it's a frightening thing. So this, this, I think it's really tragic. I mean, Zionism from, from the beginning was a problematic idea to say the least, and maybe an illegitimate idea because, I mean, superimposing a, a, a fictional state solution to one people on, on top of other people, natives, 
it's it's uh, I want I wouldn't have bought into this had I lived like a 150 years ago. I would say it doesn't make sense. I don't want to cause pain and tragedy and to other people. But the the psychology is anything to go on. Yeah, I mean through time, which which we see today, it's, this is this is getting worse and worse all the time. More isolated, more violent, uh, more um, delusional, really delusional. Because you can see it very clearly every time an Israeli spokesperson speaks, you know, sits down for an interview with anybody. You, it's almost you feel sorry for them because they are not able to to respond to a question like you would expect anyone, you know, to, to, to give an account of anything. They are not able to do it to do it because at this stage Israel and and Zionism has become so bottled up and so closed. Uh, I have no idea what's going to come out of it, but nothing good. Well, on that, I mean, there's a couple of other things I wanted to ask you, which were linked to that. And one is, I mean, look, I, I interviewed Razi Gal, the Israeli-American uh, um, associate professor of genocide and Holocaust studies. And the, he calls this, what's happening in Gaza textbook, genocide. And he said this along near the beginning of all of this, to be honest. The point he made is that intent is so rarely spoken. And, you know, a key plank of South Africa's case at the International Court of Justice is the myriad examples of statements made by Israeli government ministers, Israeli politicians, Israeli army officers, Israeli soldiers posting TikToks um, and various other social media contributions, uh, journalists, media outlets, which are just so genocidal in, in, in outlook, which is actually very rare. And then you have the polling, which I've referred to, which is disturbing. You know, when you get 83% um, saying that of 83% of Israeli Jews say they support driving out the Palestinian population of Gaza, or, you know, dressed up as voluntary migration, which is a nonsense, um, or 60% oppose humanitarian aid, which just means people being starved to death, brutally. I mean, that, that, that looks like genocidal mania. I mean, it looks like a form of genocidal mania. And I just want to know, you know, that's how it looks on the outside. You know, and I just want to know how profound is that? How much of kind of, is, is much of Israeli society actually in the grip of uh, a form of genocidal mania? Or is it, is, you know, is, are, there, are there bigger chinks of light that we need to be looking at? This, honestly, this question, almost makes me cry. This is, I feel like I'm looking at it from the outside, although I'm, I'm in it in so many, you know, in so many ways. The, the, the original scene, I'm, I'm talking about this in my article that you refer to, and I'm, I really would love anyone, everyone to read it. I'll link to it in the, uh, I'll link to it in the video. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, the very first uh, Zionist convention, the very first Zionist concept had an element of dehumanization 
for the native people of this land. Because when you make plans for anything, where other people are involved or implicated and, and they are not included in your plans and they have no regard in your plans. Israel never said what it wants to do with the Palestinians. In, uh, even in your vision, you have a vision of Zionism and you're a decent human being. What is, what about them? Okay, you have, a, you want to have this to end your misery and come out of exile as a nation and so on and so forth. Okay, what about those people? They are people too. So from the beginning, the beginning Zionism decided to just ignore the Palestinians and thus dehumanize them. But this was, at this stage, it was kind of theoretical. It was a plan, a concept, a vision, it was, people didn't realize how bad it was and how serious it was of a sin and what terrible consequences it's going to have. They, they didn't understand it. But when Zionism began to be a practice rather than an ideology, they, they were compelled to follow their, their, their dream, which denied Arab humanity, denied Palestinian humanity. And the more Jews became, the more distant Jews became from the experiences of the Golan, so it's called Nebu. I mean, the, the, the places of so-called exile, all, all the communities outside of the land of Israel where Jews were, the more distant they became from this experience, and the more they forgot about all the, the life and cultural listen. I've been to Morocco and I went and visited a 500 year old synagogue. And it was one of the most amazing places I've seen in my life. I was so, it was so beautiful, so comforting and beautiful. And it had so much history because immediately I get to thinking, a child went here, and his father went here, and his grandfather and his grand-grandfather. So many generations of people came and prayed in this place, which is, it is beautiful. But the more Jews forgot about this, and forgot about all, all everything they had, all their past lives outside of this land, the more they, the, the idea of denying Palestinian humanity become a central part of who they are. And today, this is all what being Israeli means, really. This is all that's left, denying Palestinian humanity. And, and this is the explanation how Israel treats people with this kind of disregard and a flagrant cruelty. This is to, to demonstrate, even to, to Israelis themselves, these are not people. These are not people. These are not people. And so this, this terrible original sin, as time went by and it took root and, and it became more and more central to Israeli identity because always I think that Israeli leadership 
and Zionist leadership always had this awareness that they were telling a lie. I mean, they were telling a lie about Palestinians, that they were not here, that the land was empty, that they were not people, they were just immigrated from Arab countries in the early 19th century and so on. They knew it was a lie. Mm. They knew it was a lie. So they had guilt, but they couldn't find any way to channel this guilt. So, so they made things worse. They, they, they become stronger in this in the like stupid belief because this is what you do when you have no outlet. You know when you're locked up in a mentality that doesn't allow you you know a way out. We all sometimes think irrational thoughts, but then we go out and we meet someone and maybe I don't know a car goes by, someone calls, I don't know and then we like we have this, you know, we, we come to our senses. But <laughs> Israel has made it impossible for itself with, with the so-called help of the United States. Because and this is why what I told you earlier, if, if Israel didn't have this kind of unconditional support and go on its adventures, it would be punched in the face so strongly it would would have would you know would have been forced to regain consciousness so to speak and say okay what am I doing I, I can't do this and to recalculate do do things differently but Israel is never forced to do this Israel can do whatever it wants and never face the consequences so it becomes crazier and crazier and crazier because it doesn't doesn't have pushback um, it's like a spoiled child you know was never said no to and becomes, you know, more wilder and wilder and more uncontrollable. This is what happens, especially if they started, you know, a little bit unruly to begin with. Um, well, 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 that's my final question, really. I mean, you know, look, looking for hope in the current context is a challenge. I accept that. But, you know, it's easy to just have the most arrive at the most pessimistic possible conclusions um given the dynamic within israeli society as you say given the nature of u.s patronage given that's the global hegemon kind of helps if you've got that on your side but it also means there is no check um on i guess the sorts of attitudes that you're talking about i mean you know i often bring up south africa and the reason i do is white South Africans overwhelmingly brought into apartheid, but they were forced, kicking and screaming, frankly, uh, to abandon it. Um, and that was partly because of international pressure. And it was seen as, you know, it became seen as completely morally acceptable for anyone to support the nature of yeah. apartheid South Africa. But that is not happening in this particular context. So there isn't any check on what we're discussing. So it's easy to just look at this and think, well, a lot of people are gonna die a lot of people have already died, but a huge number of people who are still alive, who are still with us, are going to die often horrific deaths. Um, and that's happening as we're speaking to each other anyway. Um, that there's every chance Gaza will be, that its population will be driven out. That basically there'll be a claim that is in, inhospitable. Um, and for humanitarian reasons, the population have to leave. And, that, and, and then you can see in the West Bank, as well as the constant attacks on the Palestinians there, there'll be kind of provocations which will then be, you know, on the basis of driving out that population and expanding the settlements. And then you just think, well, the Palestinian people have no future and they will go the way of many indigenous populations throughout history. 
and 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 Israel will just get away with it and become an increasingly you know its nature will continue to degenerate in in every sense. That's pretty bleak. Is there any possible hope? Is there and how how do we get to something which isn't the gruesome scenario I've just sketched out? I'm not sure there is hope, Owen. I'm not sure there is hope for Israel. Uh, It's terribly sad for me to say. Um, And and it's it's not even the the, funny is not the right word, but it is kind of funny in a in a you know dark humor, yeah, scary way, yeah. That it's not even reality. Israel, Israel's worst enemy is Israel itself. It's not the Iranians, it's not Hezbollah, it's not, uh, certainly not Hamas. Um, But Israel has locked itself into a position where it's all existence and justification justification for existence is that Palestinians are not human beings. The, the dehumanizing and dehumanized image of Palestinians have become the bedrock. And Israel hangs onto it like it's, you know, a lifeline. Mm-hmm. It doesn't know that it, this is the rock it's sinking with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that Israel will this is my none of us is a prophet you know but i think israel is going to do some really crazy things really crazy things in order not to admit that it was wrong Hmm. and 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 this is the, the this is the saddest saddest part of it because there was even though Zionism had all its sins, and the way it treated Palestinians, the way it treated Mizrahi Jews, the way it treated so many other people, there was often, almost always, a way to, to make it better, to amend things, to come to terms, to, you know, to, to, reach, to reach out for a hand, to do something that will change the atmosphere, change course, do... But this is, and I think that the, the the fact that we have Netanyahu, who is like the, the Netanyahu is like the ultimate manifestation of the the, the paranoid Jew. Okay, this is by no means the only. I mean, we all know this. There's no need to say it. But it's like this Jew is like a victim, a terrible historical victim on the one hand, but a huge uh, triumphant victor on on the other. I mean, we are going to be destroyed, all of us, but we are somehow miraculously going to flip things around and kill all all our enemies. I mean, for normal people, the two sides of this scenario are just insane. Now unwelcome, but for Netanyahu, this this is like the only script he knows. Other total annihilation, 
or some kind of mythical victory, which, which is which is not possible. I think Israel is going to get crazier and, until it attempts it. Yeah. It's not going to succeed because I think th this is, I mean, much to Palest Palestinians luck because the USA today is not as powerful as it was 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. So Israel today cannot accomplish this total annihilation and total extermination is such a terrible word, but th this is like the vision. Make all, disappear all Palestinians. And Israel cannot accomplish this today. Even the most corrupt Arab regime regimes, even it's, you know, most sheepish European countries, they can't stand for it. They, they, it's not possible. You can't do it today. This is not the world of 70 years, 70 years ago or a century ago. They can't do it. But they gradually led themselves into a place where this is the only solution they see. Because this is the only problem they have. <laughs> The, the Arabs, and so this is the only solution, it's always this singularity. So I think Israel is going to attempt it, and I think it's going to fail, and the fact that the empire is failing itself. And this all talk about the regional war, I, I don't think the US, people are so really bought into this propaganda that the US is such a superpower that it can win any war it wages anywhere on this planet. Mm. When we have seen this past 20 years, it, 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 it can't win anything. No. It, it can't, it, you know, it can't, it can't defeat the Taliban. It can't no. defeat, it, it was forced to, to, to it, it's being now forced to leave Iraq. After all the manipulation and all the, the, the genocide that went there and all the atrocities they went there. Libya. Yeah. And Iran is not the Iraq or Afghanistan of 20 years ago. Iran is a, is a very serious actor, a very calculated and strategic and powerful actor. The US is not, cannot just wipe out Iran. This is, this is not going to happen. It's going to end up very badly for the US <clears throat> and then consequently for Israel as well. Because when Israel does not have this umbrella of protection and when the US cannot provide endless aid, maybe because it's airplanes or boats are, are, are you know, sunk or uh, intercepted over, the, over the, the Atlantic or the Mediterranean somewhere, Israel is going to find itself in a, in a very deep hole. So, yeah, this wasn't the hope you were hoping for. Well, what I'm always more interested in is is truth and honesty. It's better to tell the truth than to to offer false hope, and and that's what you've done. Um, and Alan, it's been it's been such an honour. You know, if we look throughout our uh, blood-soaked history as a species, um, there were two responses to the horrors that humans are capable of perpetrating against each other. You either respond by allowing your humanity to be degraded or to be deepened. And you've responded by deepening your humanity. And if others 
were to respond in the same way, then we wouldn't be living in the world that we do. But it's such, um, it's been such an honor to hear you speak so eloquently, so beautifully and so humanely. And I think that really came through. I've learned a huge amount. And I think everyone who either watches or listens to this will learn um, a huge amount as well. Uh, for those who aren't following, following Alon, I will uh, leave um, his Twitter handle in the video description on YouTube. But when I post it on social media, I'll do the same. And also his article, which um, everyone should read. Uh, do share this video um, or podcast, depending how you listen to it. Press like, do subscribe as ever. But Alon, it's been a huge honor. So thank you so, so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, and if, if the, you know, the bottom line is without love, it, nothing it means, you know, nothing means nothing. So, Amen. Yeah. Amen. Thank you very much, Owen. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.